Okay, we'll be in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7. Now, uh, Joshua 6, and I appreciate uh, Paul for teaching last time on Joshua 5, uh, the last couple of times on Joshua 5 and Joshua 6. And you know what happens in Joshua 6. The people take the city of Jericho and they take it by unconventional means. They march around the city for six days, once a day. And on the seventh day, march seven times. The priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant before them the whole time. On the seventh day, after marching around the seventh time, uh, they shout and the walls fall flat. Particularly important for what we're doing today. God gave Israel the instruction that the city is to be devoted to destruction. It's to be devoted to destruction. It's under the ban. There are different English translations. But the idea is that it is given as a gift to God by totally destroying it. And there are some things that go in the treasury of the Lord as Joshua chapter 6 and verse 20, uh, 19 reveals. Joshua 6 and verse 19. But to keep anything that was devoted to destruction is to bring trouble on yourself and all Israel. And that will come to play. Um, a statement that one writer makes, and Paul may have said something like this, uh, but one that's also interesting is uh, there are a whole lot of words devoted to the deliverance of Rahab. That chapter is not only a chapter of destruction of Jericho. It is a, it is a statement of God's deliverance of Rahab out of the midst of that city. Now, I didn't know that I was supposed to write a song, though, for Joshua 7. I do not have a song to match uh, this that you all did. Did you write that? You didn't write that? Okay. That's one of mine. Oh! Okay. I, I, mentioned, I mentioned it before class, and I found all of it, so I thought I would, I would share it with the class. Okay. Sing okay. it if they wanted to. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll see. We'll see how much time we have. But yes, but, but, but uh, if you've got a song about Aiken afterwards, you can write that up. Now, as Joshua seven ended, the Bible talked about Joshua's fame spreading. As as Joshua six ended, as Joshua seven opens, we will see Israel was unfaithful. Quite. A contrast. But let's read the first five verses. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out the land. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil there. 
for they are few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up from there, but they fled for the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them as far as the gate of Shebarim and struck them down on the descent so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Okay, now looking at this text, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the man. There is a word that is used here in the Greek translation in 7.1. In the Greek translation, there's a word used to describe their unfaithfulness, which is a very unique word. I, I believe this may be this may be the only time in the Greek translation it is used. And it's used three times in the New Testament. This word's used three times in the New Testament. In Titus 2, <coughs> verse 10, in a warning uh, that slaves are not to take from their masters. Sometimes Christian slave might feel uh, a particular uh, freedom with a Christian master, and he was told not to do that. But more significantly, when the Bible tells us about a couple who sold a piece of land and kept back part of the prize, in Acts 5, verse 2, and again in Acts 5, verse 3, it uses this same word. Now we're talking here about Ananias and Sapphira. And my point is to stress that this sin in Israel's history comes about the same point as that sin in the early church. I know Israel's been around a while, but, but it's a new stage. Uh, they are coming to the promised land just like this is a new stage uh, in the history of the church. And so there is a connection made between this sin of Achan and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3. Now, one of the things that interested me is that the genealogy that is given for Achan is the longest genealogy we have seen in this book. And it may be the longest one that's given in this book, period, but it's obviously the longest that we have had to this point in time. And in a sense, Achan brings shame upon all of his ancestors by what he does. This is not the person that you want to find in your genealogy. You know, you look back in your genealogy and we look for great characters and heroic people. We don't look for people like Achan. But this line of Achan is going to end with him as we will see in this chapter. But also, 7-1 says the anger the anger of the Lord burned. The anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now in the last verse of this chapter, the Bible says the Lord turned from the fierceness 
of his anger, 726. But what I want you to see is that this chapter begins and ends with a reference to the anger of God, to the wrath of God, to the judgment of God. It begins and ends on this note. The anger that burns now will be turned away. And how will that anger be turned away? That is a key point for us to look at. Now, let's look at verses 2 and 3 and what Joshua sends these spies to do and what they come back and report. And I want to ask you, what's wrong with what they say? What's wrong with what they say? Joshua sends these two men to spy out I, and that is the way that the best we can do in pronouncing it, I. I uh, know it looks like AI, but, but it says, go up, spy out the land, and this is the report he got. Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to I. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. What is wrong with that instruction, Sarah? Well, it's not necessarily a good report about what the land... I mean, if, if you're looking for a geographical description of what the land is, they're offering advice on how to take them, and they discount the amount of people needed. They're saying, okay. there are only a few people there, and forgetting that okay. there are only a few themselves. In one yes, place. they are a few. Later, God's going to say, bring everybody, you know. So, so they maybe underestimate. Brad, you had your hand up too. Oh, I was just going to say, they didn't seem to take the counsel of the Lord. Yeah. They didn't say, the Lord needs to go with us. Yeah. It's more fundamentally, they don't mention God or His promises right here. Look at 2.24 when those two spies came back from looking at Jericho. They said, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. They don't mention the Lord. They don't mention the promises of God. There's not a mention of Joshua inquiring of the, from the, of the Lord or receiving any kind of answer. I think fundamentally that is the most wrong. This looks more like the, the ten spies who come back from searching out the land in Numbers 13 than it does those two spies in Joshua 2. But those ten spies, remember what they said? They said the people who dwell in the land are like giants, are like Nephilim, and we are like grasshoppers before their sight. They were underconfident and lacking trust in God. These people are saying, oh, we're only going to need two or three thousand. We're not going to need the whole group. They're overconfident and lacking trust in God. And whether you're underconfident and that causes you to lack trust or overconfident and that causes you to lack trust, the end of either of these is disaster. It is by the Lord that these battles are fought and these battles are won. And the Bible says in verse 4, about 3,000 men from the people went up from there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men. This is the only battle that we will have a record of in Joshua 
where the people Israel loses. But Israel is defeated in this battle. And I imagine that was quite a shock. After they have taken this city of Jericho and God has caused the walls to fall flat. But isn't that a reminder to us sometimes that the greatest of God's blessings are followed by a time when we don't feel our sense of dependence upon God. We don't feel our sense of need upon Him. But particularly instructive is this phrase in verse 5 that the hearts of the people melted. The hearts of the people melted. What we're going to find is that several things in the early part of the chapter particularly are going to be at opposite ends with things we've seen before. We have seen that phrase before. In 2.11 and 5.1 we have seen the hearts of people melt. That's supposed to be a semicolon and not a good looking one. But uh, 2.11 and 5.1 whose hearts are melting in those instances? The Canaanites, the people who live in the land, it is their hearts that melted. And now, in this particular chapter, when, when they attack without consulting the Lord, without relying upon Him in the proper way, it is their hearts that have melted as a result. Now, let's see uh, Joshua taking this problem to the Lord and the Lord's answer. Now, I, I apologize, I didn't get out um, questions to you. But, but again, what does Joshua, I ask you to, this as we read it, give you a little time to think about it. Joshua's, Joshua's complaint here, what does it remind you of? Who does it remind you of? Uh, and let's see God's answer to that particular complaint. And how is it kind of like 7-5, God's answer, in the fact that some earlier things are kind of reversed. But let's read from 6-13. to 13. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over to the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken some of the things under the ban, and have been stolen, and they have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. 
Rise up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. Joshua, the elders of the people, tear their clothes in grief at this defeat in verse 6. They tear their clothes. They fall on their, the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. First mention of the Ark in Joshua 7, though it was all over the place in Joshua 6. They fall before the Ark and they put dust on their head. These are typical signs of mourning. Tearing your clothes, falling to the earth, putting dust on your head. But when... When Joshua speaks here in verse 7, Why did you bring this people over the Jordan to deliver us to the Amorites? Uh, if only we would be willing to stay beyond the Jordan. What does that remind you of? If only we had stayed in Egypt. Yes! We see that idea quite frequently. If only... Uh, we had stayed in Egypt. And um, in Exodus 14, they even complained and said, We told you, Moses, leave us alone. Uh, it starts about verse 10 and, and uh, through about verse 14. But we see the same thing in Numbers 14 when the spies brought back the bad report. There they even choose a captain and they said we will go back to Egypt. In Numbers 20 verses 3 through 5 uh, the people again. There they are complaining oh we wish we'd been like our brothers who died in the wilderness. Talking about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. But, but they, they, they wish they died in those points. They wish they'd stayed in Egypt. And here it's, it, sounds, it sounds a lot like those murmuring and unbelieving Israelites of the past generation. It sounds like them. And it says, Lord, have you called us up to deliver to deliver us, this is still verse 7, to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites. Well, the term Amorite has been used before in the book. It's been used in 2.10, it's been used in 3.10, it was used in 5.1. In all these cases, the Amorites' heart was shaking, was shaking with fear. The Amorites were given into the hand of Israel. In chapter 12, in chapter 10, verse 12 of Joshua, chapter 10, verse 12, these not only is the word Amorite used, but the word deliver. God delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 12 is the exact reverse of this. Why have you delivered us into the hand of the Amorites? God is later going to do the opposite. But it is not God's fault. It is their fault. It is their fault. Lord, we turn back before our enemies. What can we say? They will surround us 
and cut off our name from the earth. This word translated surround was used seven times in Joshua 6 to talk about the people circling around the walls. It's the same word that's used there. There they did it in victory and now Joshua fears they're about to experience defeat as our enemies will surround us and cut off our name. At least he does say. He does focus on God. It's what will you do for your great name? Of course, God's about to give an answer to that. But, but what questions or thoughts do you have right there on those first nine verses that we've looked at? Well, I wondered how Joshua would have known, could have known. Uh, uh, and it, you, you see him here thinking that God is not keeping his promises, though. Yes, yes, he, he does seem to be thinking that. I, I, I don't know completely how he would have known this. I, I don't know if the blame is because he couldn't know this. I do think the blame may be because he didn't inquire of God before that battle. And maybe something would have been revealed there. But one writer makes the point that this is the... I, I don't know if he said this is the only time that the people of Israel go to battle where Joshua's leadership is not specifically mentioned. Think about that. I mean, that's just there are a lot of things wrong with what happens in two through five, but but uh, I, I don't know that he could have known. And but what does this tell us too about how many times when it looks like God hasn't kept His promises that there's some factor of sin or disobedience that stands between. God and the fulfillment of his promises. Maybe we're sometimes as blind to this as Joshua was right there. What, what, what other things? Anything else? I thought it was kind of interesting. If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan and whenever, whenever they were on the other side of the Jordan and the Transjordan tribe said, hey, let us stay here. You know, the others objected because the promise was for this land and why are you, you know, it was it was considered an act of unfaithfulness. Yes, that's and, a good point. And yeah. it's kind of odd that it's like... That's what they say reverse. now. Yeah. Yeah. If we'd just been willing to stay over there like yeah. we should have, but I, we shouldn't have. So. I think it seems like to me that while Joshua's real complaint is against God, he's trying to he's trying to word it in such a way as to put the blame on them. You know, oh, we should have been content with this. Though, really, his real problem seems to be with the Lord here. Yeah, I think the fact that God wanted them to He had a land for them, and now He's saying. If we had only been content, yeah. I think he's also saying lumping God into that we. Yeah. It seems like that would fit better with yeah. the previous statement. Yeah. He's saying, God, you know, we what we should have done, you know, you weren't quite right on this. What we should have done is stayed over there. Um, yeah. But it is, it is yeah. interesting that God wants to display his power in a grand way. And Joshua, and he's not content with just a little victory. He's He wants... 
a great victory for his name. Yes, yes. Yeah, you think about the whole project of taking the land of Canaan. It wasn't their own initiative. They didn't just say, hey, we got a plan to take this as promise. God has been promising that from day one. And so it was, it was God's promise and hadn't thought about the we including uh, the Lord there. But that may be, may be the case. Um, but God tells Joshua, rise up. Rise up. He's, he's told to rise up in verse 10 and verse 13. And then the, the word rise up in Hebrew, and I'm reading the New American Standard, as you know, 1995 version. But the word rise up in Hebrew in verse 10 and verse 13 is the same Hebrew word translated stand in verses 12 and 13. You're not going to be able to stand before your enemies. If you don't rise up and deal with this, you're not going to rise up before your enemies. Or if you don't stand up and deal with this, you're not going to be able to stand before your enemies. That kind of preserves the wordplay instead of translating it by different words. And um, I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about something. We were talking about a minute ago about um, Joshua you know, being held responsible when he might not, you know, didn't seem to have been able to know what Achan had done. Um, we, all of us, are happy to accept blessings as a group that someone else yes. has brought in yes. our lives. But the reverse is true. I mean, God is not, oh, yeah. the soul who sins dies. God is not going, it's not going to end our relationship with Christ if someone else sins. Yeah. But it could very well we could very well suffer, suffer the consequences, consequences because yes. of the associations, the group that we're in. Yes. And we're so quick to call, say, that's not fair. I didn't do that. Why yeah. am I having to yes. suffer those consequences? But again, we're happy to accept the blessings of living, the blessings of living in a safe country that we didn't do anything. To Absolutely. Bring about. Absolutely. And you I mean, know, lots of other things like that. And one of the main points of this chapter is that the innocent sometimes suffer for the sins of the guilty. How about those 36 men that were killed and died? I mean, they may have been good, trusting in God and family men who are walking with the Lord, and yet they're killed because of ache and sin. There is a sense of corporate responsibility and there's a sense of individual responsibility that runs throughout all the body. The corporate responsibility is not as intense in the sense that we're going to stand before God as judgment for what everybody else has done. But there are some things. And, and, and I can remember um, I can remember this being pointed out when we were at school. We're slow to be a part of a group or a part of a sinful group, so we're suffering. And Anne says, we say that's not fair. And, 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 and um, I think this was Phil Roberts who made this point in the last class we ever seen. He said, how many of you students are from the state of Florida? And a bunch of them raised their hand. And, and he said, did, did you all get that grant that comes only to Florida students? And, and you know, everybody raises their hand. And he says, why does that come? Because of gambling. And so we're sometimes happy to accept the benefits. 
that we get from living even in a sinful society and so we're happy to accept those benefits but quick to complain but boy yes well what what uh, what i'm thinking about is is not like everybody else uh, that is sinless but there's a difference in what Achan did and what's characteristic of uh, everybody else yes yes there's a different level of guilt and he will experience a different punishment because of that yes you're right but it did have negative impact on all the people and uh, and had something else than Mindy well just that many of the prophets recognized that sense of corporate responsibility and often yeah. included themselves Isaiah in particular but some of the other yeah. prophets in yeah. their writings would include themselves mm-hmm. as guilty even for Israel's sins yes yeah yeah, I think about like Daniel's prayer, Daniel 9, is a good illustration of that. I'm just wondering if we struggle with this because of our culture. Like, we're very ruggedly independent Americans, and I don't yeah. think we have this sense very much of the group that I'm a part of, whether that's family, church, state, whatever. Yeah, there, there is some of that. There, there, yes, I understand what you're saying. And, and there's a part of that individualism that I appreciate from the standpoint we we don't part of the idea I think was born is that we are understanding the principle if a person doesn't work that they don't eat and you're responsible for what you do in that respect and that's part of that's good and right but if we think that we are not dependent on God for blessings in every circumstance that's foolishness you know, the answer to, from a big picture view of the world, some teach dependence upon themselves. Some teach dependence upon government. We teach dependence upon God. That's the difference. And that's how we've got to build our life. That's not to say it's ever wrong to take a penny from you know, situation, but it is to say we are dependent upon God. It's a different way of life. But but you're right because we do that. It's, it's hard. In the Old Testament, some have said it was more difficult for them to recognize their individual responsibility. And Ezekiel really stresses that you know, the soul that sins, it shall die. And well, that's hard. On the other hand, um, we tend to stress individual responsibility almost to the exclusion of corporate responsibility in 1 Corinthians 15 or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5 there's like a verse said about the sinful man and most of it's addressed to the church as far as to how to deal with that sinful man so so I think Mindy's right that sometimes we do that and, and usually with a lot of things that are emphasized in culture there's both a good and bad aspect of it there's a part of it that makes sense and there's a part of it that doesn't um, but I wanted to point out too when he says in verse 11 Israel has sinned and Israel has transgressed I, I, I didn't I, I didn't do this yet but one good thing just look at everything that sin is called in the Bible uh, this place it's called transgressed now why does that make any difference now uh, in this book of Joshua this is a word that's been used 
quite frequently in the book, and it's usually been in, it usually it's cross over. It's translated cross over, like cross over the Jordan or cross over. It's it's a word used for stepping across a boundary line or something like this. But here it's used, and this is used in the sense of God giving them the land of Canaan. Is it's used? Cross of, it's a land that's belonged to somebody else. But here it's used in a bad sense, in a negative sense. You're crossing a boundary line and doing something that is forbidden. And, and that's a picture of sin. That's one of the pictures of sin in the Bible. There's a line here. There's a line drawn that we don't cross. You know, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. There's a line drawn. You step over that line. You transgress, you, and, you know, and some of those boundaries, it is amazing to me, too, about culture. Society will laugh at those boundaries. And then all of a sudden, when someone crosses them, we hold him up for ridicule. There was a football coach who, if, if an announcer just got on, a sports channel and said if you're with someone else's wife that's a sin he'd probably be fired like that but then a football coach is found after a game after a loss no less with a woman 40 years younger than he is in her early 20s when he's married and he's held up for ridicule and that causes him to lose his job we all know those boundaries are there. We know it even when we pretend like they don't make no difference. And I know that wasn't good English. Um, just for emphasis. But he says, Israel has transgressed. They've sinned. They've transgressed. They've taken some things under the ban. They've stolen. They've deceived. And they cannot stand before their enemies. That statement is made in 7.12 and 7.13. They cannot stand. What is interesting, in 1.5, God had promised them that no man can stand against you. But now that there is sin in the camp, now that there is sin among the people, you are not going to be able to stand before your enemies. And God says in 7.12, He says, I will not be with you. The reason for their success has been that the Lord was with them wherever they went in 1.5 and 1.9. God was with them, and therefore no man could stand before them. But now He is not with them, and they're not going to be able to stand until they deal with this problem. He says you consecrate the people, consecrate yourselves, and until you deal with these things under the ban and take them away from your midst, then you're not going to be able to stand. Bob? <coughs> This idea, Jericho was the first city inside the Promised Land. That they yes. If, if, 
do you think do you think about this this idea of the city being under the ban, uh, <coughs> marked for destruction, kind of like that fat lamb of your flock? Exactly. It was. It was God. Exactly. It belonged to God, no one else, and that's why Incan's uh, sin was so heinous. Yeah. You know. Uh, he cut, he cut the leg off the lamb. And he off took part that was to be God and, and used it for himself. And the whole, the whole nation, the, all the people, were giving that to God instead yeah. of taking it unto themselves. Yes. So we see that sacrifice there uh, that was required but, but made null and void yeah. by Achan's singular act. Yes. Collateral damage. Yes. A burnt offering was totally offered on the altar. In a sense, Jericho is a burnt offering to God. Also, yeah, yes, that's right. And, um, and and also, you offered the first of your flock to God, as, as Bob stated, trusting God, therefore, to provide for you. They, the first city they take, it would have been strategic outpost. It would have been a good city. Do you know that Jericho is the oldest city we know of on earth? I mean, we can trace the occupation of that city back further than we can any other city. And that's not very far, by the way. You know, about 8,000 uh, B.C., which is one reason why, and I'm getting on tangents. I, 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 you know, if probably is good reason to date the flood before then because if you've got a sustained le lever of uh, occupation since then. But it's the oldest city on earth and yet they could have had it but God says you give it to me believing I'm going to give you the whole land. So the transgressed crossover part yes. is the word in verse 7 translated as that send this people over is that a word or the same word? Okay, let me see. I, it is used somewhere in this context, but um, it's in. It is yes. Why have you? Um, it says, "Oh Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan?" It is the same word. Yeah, it is the same word. Cool. Okay. Um, in verses. 14 through 18. Can you imagine, by the way, how Aiken's feeling about now? Sin doesn't seem... That, that, that bar of gold and, and um, doesn't look so impressive now. But what they're going to do, God tells them in verses 14 and 15 that you have the people come near to you by tribes and I'll select the tribe. And then uh, the... Uh, and, they're diff and some of these words are used somewhat interchangeably then you collect the families the word there might better be clans be better translated so you take the tribe you take the clan then you take the personal household that's how I think of the term family in a more restrictive sense and then man by man well that's the way it's going to narrow it down I'm going to take the tribe that's guilty take the clan that's guilty take the family household that's guilty and then the person that is guilty what you see 
in verses uh, that God says for them to do in verse 14 is carried out in verses 16 through 18. They have the tribe of Judah, the family or the or the clan of the Zerahites, the, the, the family of Zabdi, and then of course the man is Achan that they find guilty. And it was a difficult task. I know that Joshua didn't want it as no leader wants to be in the part of disciplining people. But in verse 16, Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel nearby tribes. They come to do it. They, this is, in effect, a, a kind of... Um, this is a lottery not to choose someone to be king nor apostle, but to find those who are guilty. But where do you find a precedent... Where do you find other examples of that in the Bible? Something like that, some kind of an event like this, where you find out who's guilty? Jonah. Jonah, exactly. Jonah 1, 7 and 8. You have something similar to that after Saul defeated the Philistines. And he said, who sinned, Saul, me or Jonathan or the people? And it falls to Saul and Jonathan. So you have something similar in 1 Samuel chapter 14. But I, I want you to notice what verse 19 says. And, and this, is, this is pretty powerful. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. We do not give praise and glory to God when we sin. But when we acknowledge our sin and turn from it, we give glory to God. The word confess means to say the same thing. When we confess sin, we are saying the same thing about sin that God says about sin. We are acknowledging that sin is transgression, sin is stealing, sin is deceit, or whatever other terms, and whatever other terms have been used here. He says, give glory to God, give praise to the God of Israel, and... Do acknowledge your sin, but do not hide it. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 that he who confesses and forsakes his sin uh, who will find compassion. He who seeks to conceal his sin will not prosper. But I want you to, to see how Achan responds to this. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and what I've did, what I've done. Now, I want to express this real clearly here. For many of you, if not all of you, have heard me say before that Hebrew is kind of a compact language. We may have the subject, the verb, and the object all in one word. Okay. Usually, the subject 
who is acting is inherent in the verb. Okay? I, I, listen, I, I'm not a good grammarian, okay? This is about the extent of my ability to, to, uh, to um, grammaticize, if that's a word. Um, but, but usually the subject of the verb is present in the verb itself in Hebrew. If there is a separate personal pronoun, it is usually like underlying that bold tie, whatever we would do to emphasize something. Do you know that here Aiken uses the separate personal pronoun for I? It's already present. It is already present in the next word, send. And so he is taking full responsibility for what he has done in this case. I'm not defending him nor what he has done to this point. But I am saying the way he is dealing with this is the only way we should deal with this. He is saying, I, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. He's emphasizing his guilt and his sin. And at this point, he is holding nothing back. He says, I saw a beautiful mantle from Shinar with 250 shekels of silver and a gold bar of 50 shekels in weight. I coveted them. I took them. Now, this particular expression here in 7 in verse 21. I saw it was beautiful and I took it. In Genesis 3, verse 6, Eve saw the tree was good. The word good in Hebrew is the same word as the word beautiful here. She saw the tree was good. She took it. All the English words are the same. All the Hebrew words are the same. His sin was an imitation of the sin in the Garden of Eden. His sin is an imitation of Eve's sin when she saw the tree was good and she took it. That was also, by the way, used in Genesis 6-2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives for themselves. It is also used in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2-4. through as the Bible says, David saw a beautiful woman and eventually he took her. This is language that's used often of someone looking at something. It is sparkling to them. It looks good. It looks beautiful. And they end up desiring it and taking it. He knew he was wrong. What evidence is there right there that he knows he's wrong in what he's doing? He concealed it in his tent. He knows he's wrong. He knows he's wrong in what he's done. He concealed it. But I want to make, and, and listen, it doesn't make any difference what we say on what I'm about to say from the standpoint of his eternal welfare. Because God's not waiting for my decision on Aiken's eternal welfare. But he's repenting. And maybe in God's mercy, he is forgiven. And the amazing thing is though, 
But, but he responds to sin exactly the way we should. I mean, it's exactly, even if it involves you experiencing capital punishment. Have you ever seen or heard of stories of Christians who committed, or people who committed capital crimes and become Christians? Who may be forgiven of their sins, but at the same time experience the consequences of their sin. And so in verse 22 and 23, Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in the tent and with the, with the silver underneath it. They took them, they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before the Lord. Now, there's going to be a word play in the last three verses between Achan, Acre, and the word troubled in Hebrew is almost the same as those two names. Achan and Acre, you can see that probably in English. You know, you can see that they got some of the same letters. It sounds the same way, uh, Achan and Acre, but also the word troubled. We still, we, we, we are not going to stop that chapter. We're going to pick up at 724, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. And because it is very important to see the final outcome of this. Brad? I think it's interesting to see the harshness of the law here yeah. on Aiken. Yeah. Um, because you see, oh, he confessed and yeah. he, he right away yeah. when he was found out. Yes. But there was no forgiveness. Yes. Aiken in, in, in this country. Yeah, or maybe a better. Yeah. Better than forgiveness to say it doesn't remove the punishment, doesn't remove the consequence. There's no mercy as far as punishment is involved, yeah. but maybe for forgiveness. And and uh, and that's right. And uh, but but think about think about that that Brad just said. I mean, and think about the implications of that. We may get into that Wednesday night and say more about that. But thank you and. Um, Lord willing, we'll pick up here and get into chapter 8. Thank you.